This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. My guest today is Jerry Brito, who is the executive director for Coin Center, a uh, cryptocurrency research and advocacy organization. He's also an adjunct law professor at George Mason University, the host of the Surprisingly Free podcast, and kind of an overall technology junkie. (laughs) Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Isaac. You bet. So let me get a little bit um, of your background and your story. How how did you find yourself at kind of the intersection of technology and public policy? Well, it's, you know, uh, a little bit of luck, um, uh, but a lot of it is just my interest. Um, I've just been both just personally interested in politics for it since I was, you know, small and at the same time, very interested in technology. And I've always been a tinkerer. Um, uh, I, I, my parents put me in little league and I hated it. I quit it. And I, uh, <laughs> begged them to put me into night school computer classes so I could learn basic, uh, language programming. And, uh, so that, those were just my two things that were sort of separately my interests. And, um, uh, when I came to DC, I, uh, uh, interned at the Cato Institute, and there I met Adam Thierer, um, uh, who was their tech policy guy. And I sort of realized, oh, you can do, you can combine these two things. Hmm. And um, you know, it, ever since it's been uh, uh, you know, just what I wanted to do. Do you ever find that, <laughs> as a as a tech guy, right? You're you're constantly in touch with all of the potential that humans have for amazing progress, rapid innovation, and you're kind of up to speed on all the cutting edge, yet you're in a town and working in a realm policy, which is about as far on the opposite end of the spectrum as you can be in terms of like slow, bureaucratic. Do do you find that to be frustrating or does that challenge excite you trying to find a way to, you know, get this sort of world with all these backward incentives that, that tends to move slowly um, and be averse to change to, to sort of talk to and play nice with this fast moving technology sector? You know, it's um, the way I see it is that uh, I, I'm a little bit of a technological determinist where I think that, um, you know, humans are incredibly innovative. They will innovate regardless of what the law is. I mean, I mean let's not say that because actually the law does matter because you can imagine uh, a situation where it's just impossible to innovate, but um, but pretty much despite the law, humans are going to innovate, um, and so uh, uh, as a result, we're we're going to get these um, uh, technologies that are going to ultimately affect what the law uh, is. Um, the problem is that uh, you know, as I'm saying, the, the law can um, uh, affect the pace of innovation, and so to me. It's all these cool things are happening out here, um, uh, uh, usually in Silicon Valley, um, and they're innovating, sort of completely ignoring um, what any of the folks out on the East Coast and, and in Washington, D.C. or in the state capitals uh, are saying. And the problem there is this, this can often take uh, uh, sort of policymakers and, and, and bureaucrats by surprise, um, and then a bad reaction 
um, can really hurt the innovation and hurt um, uh, sort of the public from getting access to that innovation. So anyhow, that's a long way of saying that to me, it's 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 super important and therefore I guess exciting um, to 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 help um, be a translator um, and help be somebody who. Um, uh, keeps the world safe <laughs> for in, for innovation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's interesting. I've gone back and forth so many times trying to wrap my head around, like, what do I actually believe in terms of, I, I know that laws and able to broaden it out, the institutions we live under, I know that those matter, mm-hmm. but it's sort of in what sense, right? Because I, I agree with you that humans will always find ways to, innovate and even in a even in a really oppressive you know socialistic or, or, or a planned economy like some of the former Soviet states the you know the drive to innovate it will it will be channeled into the black market it will be channeled in different directions and I almost see it as that that innovation and that kind of entrepreneurial spirit it's gonna be there it's a question of where does it manifest and I right. tell me give me your take on this I I think that one of the reasons so much of the innovation and part of it's just the nature of the technology as, as well but one of the reasons so much of the innovation has been in software is precisely because the institutional constraints that the laws the regulatory structure in any kind of physical goods is so detrimental it's it, it makes it so hard to innovate if you want to build a radical new you know form of i don't know physical transportation whether it's aviation or the automobile industry i mean you're just dealing with this web of um you know regulations and vested interests and so it kind of the, the regulatory structure can can sort of determine or, or for example if you have a huge amount of rent seeking going on some really you know entrepreneurial person will put those entrepreneurial energies into being a political entrepreneur um, and trying right. to innovate as in finding ways to, you know, get the law to work in their favor and, and to, you know, shut down their competitors instead of innovating to benefit consumers. So it's, it's that innovation isn't going to be stifled, but like where where you channel it is kind of how I think about it. I don't know. what What's your take on the um, – you know, the, the yeah. way that software has dominated, it, do you think that regulation has a part, has, you know, a role to play there? I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think this is I mean. So, you know, Mark Andreessen, uh, uh, I think it's in 2011, he wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal called Why uh, Software is Eating the World, yeah. which has sort yeah. of become seminal. Yep. Um, and uh, his point is, uh, you know, simply that that software uh, can automate and can make more efficient so many of um, the industries, uh, so sort of legacy industries. And that's what we've been seeing. Little by little, industries have been uh, sort of um, uh, uh, being consumed by software applications. And I think where you see software being applied uh, to uh, make industries more efficient, it's just been where, it's, where the low-hanging fruit is. It's, they didn't start with taxi cab. Uh, the taxicab industry, yeah. um, you know, where we started was with publishing um, and with communications and with social networking. Um, but I think at this point, what we're seeing is that we're running out of unregulated industries to disrupt using mm. software to make more efficient. And what's left, the really big industries, the really big uh, uh, spaces uh, where consumers uh, are going to be benefiting from uh, innovation when entrepreneurs can really um, uh, reap rewards from innovating and disrupting 
are all regulated industries. So if you think about what those are, I mean, you can start with transportation. Um, and so we're seeing what's happening with Uber. You can see what's happening with self-driving cars. Um, and again, that's very regulated. You can see what's happening uh, with uh, drones. Um, but then it's also going to be education. It's going to be healthcare, yeah. um, and it's going to be finance. Yep. Um, and these are all incredibly regulated. And so now these entrepreneurs, not you know, don't only have a technical challenge, um, but now they have to play uh, this regulatory game. Which you know, as you say, there are incumbents um, who can rent seek, um, uh, uh, you know, et cetera. And a lot of times, um, my experience has been that um, regulators, policymakers. Um, they like the innovation and they want to um, foster the innovation and they fully understand that uh, legacy uh, industries um, uh, could stand more competition and they want to make way for that. Um, they just don't know how. They don't know how to get out of the way. Um, and, and so they just need to be uh, educated on, on what's necessary. And a lot of times they're more than happy to do that. They're not, you know... Uh, it, it's not a rule that they are inevitably or invariably uh, captured by by the incumbents. Yeah. I want to I want to come back um, and spend a good bit of time kind of on that topic the the possibilities and pitfalls of you know sort of educating lawmakers and trying to trying to work with that you know regulatory apparatus. But before I do, I just want to ask a couple more questions sort of on your your background. Um, first. Your personal website, jerrybrito.com. What does the skull and crossbones signify? Oh, uh, nothing really. I just needed like uh, a logo. I've always just <laughs> liked. Um, so uh, I have a friend um, uh, who, uh, uh, yeah, I think you know her, Jennifer Zambone, uh -huh. um, who says that um, it's my Spanish heritage. You know, Spanish, the Spanish uh, traditionally through the medieval period, et cetera, have always been fascinated by death. <laughs> And, and, uh, and so there's a lot of skull representations in Spanish art. Um, and I, I think it comes from that. Um, <laughs> I, I just think skulls are cool. Um, I, I like sort of the reminder of, of one's mortality. Um, that's, a, that's about it. It's also, there's also a pirate element to that. Yeah. That's what I wondered. Know? Yeah. You know, when Steve jobs, um, uh, uh, took the Mac team, uh, sort of away from, uh, internally away from the management at Apple, he put it in a building and he flew a skull and crossbones flag over that building. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's, that's, that's pretty neat. Um, tell me just a little bit about your podcast, surprisingly free. Well, how, how long you've been doing it and how you got into that. So, so I, I you mentioned that in the, in my, in my introduction and I didn't correct you, but since I uh, moved uh, from the Mercator center uh, to, to, um, come to coin center full time. I've stopped, uh, doing, oh, you, oh, you uh, don't do podcast. it anymore. Oh, geez. I no. didn't do enough of my homework. I apologize. No, that's, that's all right. Um, but that podcast went on for about two or three years and you know, all the back episodes are there. And, uh, basically there are a lot of very, very interesting folks who are academics, uh, or journalists or, uh, um, uh, other practitioners who were doing a lot of great work in technology policy. Um, uh, and it was just a podcast. It was like a one-on-one -on -one sort of conversation, uh, sort of like econ talk was the inspiration. So it was kind of like econ talk for technology yeah. and technology policy. Um, all right. I, I want to know about, because you were, you were working as a, basically a policy, uh, analyst at the, the Mercatus center, which is a think tank. Um, 
And then you moved into being the executive director for a brand new organization, Coin Center. How did that how did that come about? Um, I mean, were you sort of just a leading voice on cryptocurrency and the policy implications? Did someone approach you or was this your idea? Hey, there needs to be an organization specifically for cryptocurrency issues. How did Coin Center uh, come about? Yeah. So, um, you know, I was at Mercatus for about um, almost 10 years. And there I started and directed something called the Technology Policy Program. And um, by the time uh, I left, uh, we were a team of four um, uh, focused on technology policy broadly from, you know, old school sort of telecom, spectrum, copyright, patent issues. And increasingly it was emerging technology issues. So drones, 3D printing, uh, uh, cryptocurrency. Um, and cryptocurrency was sort of uh, my uh, interest in the issue that I, I covered. And, you know, for the past three years or so, my life was sort of increasingly being consumed by only that issue. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, when I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011, um, I was just, you know, floored. Did, did you did you right away see, oh, my gosh, this is huge? Or yeah. did it take you a minute? OK, yeah, it took no, me, it took me exactly a minute. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, when I first heard about it, I was just immediately I'm like, oh, like I, I was floored you know, by uh, the elegance of the system and, and just, you know, you could see sort of the social and economic implications. Yeah. Uh, but I think that what I saw as well at that moment was, oh, this has huge regulatory implications. And I don't think anybody was really thinking about that at that time. I think at that time, people were, were the biggest concern that you'd see like on the message boards was um, whether Bitcoin was legal because only the, the, the federal government has um, the power to print money. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's that's an easy legal question. You can look it up. Uh, um, we've had private monies um, uh, uh, for centuries, uh, probably. Um, there's no law against, uh, basically the constitutional, and now I'm getting in the weeds here, but the, con the constitutional power for, federal for the federal government to be the only one who can print money is uh, only means that the states cannot print money. Uh, but individuals can issue script and, you know, and, and that's fine as long as they don't represent that it's uh, uh, legal tender. Anyhow, so that was not an issue, but I could see that there were a lot of other um, uh, uh, policy issues here. And, um, you know, so it was right up my alley. Um, and so I started asking around um, in D.C. Uh, what folks were thinking about this, if, if they had heard about it and what they and what I what I heard back was um, a lot of folks had not heard about it. Um, uh, a lot of folks. Uh, had heard about it and knew something they probably need to be paying attention to, but really didn't understand what it was really. Mm. Um, and so I began to write about it. Um, I wrote um, the first sort of mainstream media article um, about Bitcoin uh, for a time um, and uh, I got it some attention that way. Um, but then I, I uh, with Andrew Castillo, I wrote something called Bitcoin, a primer for policymakers, which was sort of a short um, uh, booklet uh, that explained what the technology is, how it works, uh, why it's important, and and sort of what are the policy implications, and you know how you might want to think about those, um, and that was very successful. Um, it got really wide uh, circulation. That led to uh, uh, many briefings, uh, many consultations. Um, it led to uh, eventually um, testifying uh, in the first hearings the Senate held um, uh, on uh, Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, over the course of those three years, I sort of became um, uh, like the Bitcoin guy uh, in D.C. 
Um, and, and, and increasingly it was just what I, you know, it, it was the issue that was taking up all of my time, uh, uh, at Mercatus. And, um, the way that Coin Center came about is, um, I had been friendly, um, with, uh, Balaji, uh, Srinivasan, uh, who is a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Now he is CEO, uh, of 21, uh, which is a Bitcoin company. Uh, he's doing that as well. Um, and, uh, you know, Balaji has been one of the, the sort of big uh, evangelists for Bitcoin in Silicon Valley. Um, and then also I had been um, uh, uh, sort of working a little bit with Robin Wiseman, who's now our senior policy counsel. Uh, and Robin um, did work with Alex Morcos, who's the founder of Hudson River Trading, um, now sort of emeritus uh, from that. And uh, he's now uh, co-founder of uh, Chaincode Labs which is essentially an R&D shop uh, uh, for Bitcoin. And, and so Alex and Balaji had sort of come to the conclusion, which I also uh, had sort of seen, which is why I was doing what I was doing. You know, they'd come to the conclusion that um, there really was not a serious, credible, trusted voice for Bitcoin um, uh, that could talk to policymakers, that could talk to the media. Um, uh, you know, Bitcoin has, has had this very uh, rogue libertarian reputation. Um, uh, folks on Capitol Hill, at the agencies, and in the, in, the, in the mainstream media, um, when they wanted to talk to Bitcoin and they wanted to pick up the phone and call Bitcoin, who would they call? There was no really nobody serious, and incredible on the other end, and they really felt um, a need uh, uh, for that to exist. And so they approached me, um, and they said, "Look, if we." Uh, start a Bitcoin think tank, will you head it up? And I said, no, that's ridiculous. Why <laughs> Why would you do that? Um, especially, you know, because, you know, uh, at Mercatus, we had a very good technology policy program. And I was already doing this. Uh, and, you know, and I said, you know, the, you've got it right here. Um, and, uh, you know, they went away and they came back a month later and they're like, no, really, this we really, really need this. And I, I sort of um, uh, came to a conclusion that, yeah, um, uh, it was necessary to have a full-time staff of folks dedicated to nothing uh, mm-hmm. but this. And that's how, how it came to be. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, we've been very lucky uh, uh, to have um, uh, Alex uh, and Balaji uh, on our board, um, as well as Susan Athey uh, and Jeff Garzik, uh, who's one of the core developers uh, of Bitcoin, and then some uh, amazing uh, advisors. And- yeah, I was, I was looking at your advisory board. It's it's some heavy hitters in the you know sort of tech VC world. You have uh, and Mark Andreessen. You have uh, Fred Wilson is on there as well. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's quite a uh, it's quite a collection of of you know influential guys, people. Yeah, and the and the and the cool thing is is that they really really are passionate about this and really believe um, uh, uh, that this is a, a you know it's it's you know it's 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 sound. It, like I feel like sometimes it's easy to overstate, but you know, uh, <laughs> I and, and these folks, we, we really believe that that Bitcoin is as important an innovation as the web. Yeah, I you know I had heard that and thought, okay, that must be crazy. And then I read, um, and I knew you know, increasingly was learning more about Bitcoin, and I read a little booklet that um, a good friend of mine, uh, Steve Patterson, wrote. What's the big deal oh, yeah. about Bitcoin? And that was when it finally, because that's when I understood that the difference between Bitcoin. Um, and the, the underlying technology of the blockchain. And it, I just realized like how revolutionary, I, I agree. I mean, I do think it's as, as big a deal as the internet. Um, is Coin Center an advocate for all cryptocurrencies or just Bitcoin? 
uh, all cryptocurrencies. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, we're we're agnostic about that. Um, but the the truth of the matter is, is the Bitcoin is the eight hundred pound gorilla. Yeah. Whenever yeah. we get a call to come give a briefing on Capitol Hill, it's a call about Bitcoin. It's not a call about Dogecoin. <laughs> when I'm invited to speak on a panel, it's inevitably a panel about Bitcoin. It's not a panel about Litecoin, right? It it, it seemed like there was this phase, and I'm not, you know, I don't follow this yeah. very closely, but where it kind of appeared like, hey, there's all these different right. altcoins and, you know, Litecoin might be silver to Bitcoin's gold and there's all these other, you know, and then that all sort of died down quite a bit. Um, right. Now, you know, who knows what what may or may not emerge, but um, side chains, side chains will emerge. And I can. OK, give, give a yeah, give a give a. OK, actually, yeah, that's good. That's good, because we'll hold off on that. Look it up. I, just look, look up side chains. So I want to I want to ask you, I want to sort of challenge I'm going to challenge the entire model that Coin Center is established on. <laughs> sure. Not, not really, but so I used to I used to work in the state legislature in Michigan, right. and I remember, and then I worked for the Mackinac Center, a think tank there in Michigan, yeah. and you know, and this is very very common that these think tanks, these advocacy groups, they have this view of the world because often they're founded and supported by business people who create value for customers, they innovate and they go out and sell it. And then they bump into some regulation or something that makes it harder for them to do business or something that's just, you know, outdated, needs to be updated. And they're like, this makes no sense. Let's go talk to the lawmakers. They must not understand. And, and usually they don't understand. They don't, you know, they aren't experts on everything, uh, right. you know, for all the things they're supposed to, to legislate. It would be impossible to, to right. you know, be knowledgeable on everything. So this idea that the problem with all these messed up regulations is lawmakers don't have good information. And the number of times I saw well-meaning think tank types give testimony at a committee hearing and basically teach lawmakers about their industry um, and explain why regulation X, Y, or Z is a bad idea and think there. I told them, they all said, oh, that makes sense. Uh, mm -hmm. We've won. And, and my head, I used to have a friend who say, um, or a friend used to always say, None of that matters. You have to be the biggest butt, he said, because you'll come in and say, hey, this is what should be done in telecommunications. And the lawmaker will say, hey, good study. Uh, you're right. That would be better. But if I do that, Comcast will kill me and they right. give me a bunch of money. And I think you saw this. You see this all the time with, with sort of the, the naivete of innovators who aren't familiar with public choice theory and the, the messiness of the policy process, they'll, they'll launch something, you know, like Outbox, the, uh, the, the company that was, you know, going to take your mail, scan it for you yeah. and email it to you. And talk about a regulated industry. Yeah. And they realize, you know, everyone will like this. Even the post office will like this. Who couldn't like it? You know, we're helping their customers be happier. And they realize that the post office's customers are not you, it's junk mailers. <laughs> and they ran into that wall and there's this kind of naivete, like, well, if we just tell them the right thing, they'll do it. Um, and it usually, it usually doesn't work that way. It's all about who the vested interests are because polit politicians are risk averse. They're going to put their finger in the wind and they're going to figure out where is it safe for me to go. If I can pass this good policy and someone educates me on why it's good and I believe them, and if I can do that and get away with it, I'll do it. But if I can do that and it's going to hurt me, if the unions are going to come down on me or whatever industry has a really strong lobby, I'm not going to do it. So what would your response be to, because you kind of said before that, hey, look, lawmakers, all they need is better information. Um, 
wouldn't you say that's kind of a naive way to look at it? Isn't it more about the incentives and, and where the, you know, where are they going to gain politically and where are they going to suffer politically? Um, and that means in terms of donations, in terms of PR, in terms of whatever, you know, interests they're beholden to. How do you respond to that, you know, more public yeah. choice critique? Oh, no, I, I mean, I can't disagree with anything uh, you said. I think everything you said is, uh, you know, absolutely uh, spot on. Um, uh, and I don't think that all legislators need is good information. I think sometimes that's the case. I think sometimes there is nobody on the other side. Like, so for example, I mean, um, and it's also, you have to think on the margin, right? Talk, talk about uh, yeah. uh, thinking economically. Um, so let me give you an example. Take um, uh, New York's bit license, uh, which is uh, probably going to be, well, it's not technically the first uh, state regulation about Bitcoin, but it's but it's it's probably the most important simply because it's gotten the most attention, they've done the most work on it, and it, it's likely going to be a model uh, uh, for other states, where other states are at least are going to treat it um, as a model. Um, so the first draft of the bit license um, that was uh, issued um, was horrendous. I mean, it's still pretty bad, uh, <laughs> but but it's it was horrendous, and you know there were two kinds of, of of sort of provisions that made it horrendous. Some you could say were uh, uh, you know sort of bad out of ignorance, and some were sort of bad out of malice, right? And so the ones that are bad out of ignorance, you could clear those up with simply information, um, uh, where you know they don't mean you know they don't mean to. Um, uh, uh, cover something um, with a you know require a bit license of some companies, um, uh, uh, but their text is written does cover them. Mm-hmm. And so when you explain this to them, you explain, look, you know, if you just change this wording here, it would you know wouldn't cover these folks that you don't mean to cover. Um, uh, that's that's an, that's a low hanging fruit um, that you can get, and that is uh, a win. Uh, and, and that goes back to my technological determinism, right? Where, again, this is going to happen one way or the other. Um, and so the question is, is it going to happen, um, it, you know, in five years and 10 years and 20 years? And so to the extent that you can, on the margin, make it easier yeah. uh, for some entrepreneurs, I think uh, that's a win. You know, it's it's interesting. I've always found a really helpful paradigm, this idea of a window of political possibility. Yeah. And at, at any given time, there's a range of policy options that are politically possible. And that, that window is ultimately determined by, you know, sort of the beliefs of the public, the sentiment of the public. Right. You know, you could, you could say at one time, let's ban alcohol, and that was politically possible. Now you can't. That's outside the window. So right. the, the sort of big shifts come from shifts in public opinion that sort of reshuffle the deck in terms of, you know, the interests at, at play and, and, you know, what, what the politicians can sort of get away with. But within that window... There are also better and worse policies within the That's world. That's right. So there's a whole That's... range of, you know, after the eminent domain thing, everyone was ticked off. And now there's this window where it's really politically profitable to pass, um, you know, legislation that restricts government's ability to use eminent domain for private use. Great. But there's a lot of different types of legislation that the public is going to do. If you pass something, they're going to say, good, I'm happy. You benefit from that. But it can be written badly and it can be written well. And there's a chance for people who have the expertise to improve it on the margin, to make the options within that window slightly better than they otherwise would be. Is that kind of how you would see your role? I think that's absolutely right. 
So, um, so your I, audience is lawmakers. It's not the general public so much. Well, um, yeah, it's not the general public so much. Um, it is going to be lawmakers, policymakers, the media okay. um, are really, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, sort of our, our target. But let me say also that. So it's it's one thing is, is I think we can make improvements on the margin. The other thing is, um, it's that if you, it, you know. Even um, uh, being fully aware of all of the uh, public choice constraints um, that lawmakers and, and, and we face, et cetera, um, I think you know, something I've, I've, I've learned a lot while in, in the nine months that we've been operating is how important it is to have a seat at the table. Um, because so much of policymaking is, um, is not simply – you know, pure muscle. So, I mean, so Comcast can have a lot of sway over legislators because um, uh, they make campaign contributions, et cetera, but it's not that transactional. It's not as transactional as I think um, we like yeah. to think sometimes. Um, a lot of it is, is, you know, y y you can have all the, uh, you know, the, the most campaign contributions in the world, but if what you're suggesting, as you say, it's outside the window, um, it's not going to do you any good. Yeah. And so much of policymaking um, uh, happens through consensus, and 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 the way that happens is you just sit, you just have conversations, and you talk through options, and you and you explain things, and um, and so just being there, and participating in that process um, uh, uh, gets you um, uh, uh, better uh, outcomes. And then the last thing I'd say is, in our case, um, we've been very uh, fortunate in a way. Uh, that I think that the folks who would be the natural antagonists to uh, a fair, simple, sound policy uh, for for Bitcoin, um, these folks I think are facing an innovator's dilemma, mm. um, and so they are doing one of two things. They're and sometimes they're doing kind of both at the same time, which is kind of interesting when when you watch it. They are either um, sort of rejecting ignoring, dismissing the technology as a, as a toy, the way that so many, you know, the way that Kodak dismissed yeah, digital, right. you know, um, uh, it, or at the same time, they're trying to co-opt it. Um, they're who, trying to who say, are, who are the, who, who's the most threatened by Bitcoin? Well, I mean, I, I, I would say, um, whether or not they realize it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that, um, sort of most obviously um, disrupted would be something like Western Union or any kind of remittance company. Okay, uh, so the, like, the, the payment, the method of payments. It's not, it's not just, it's not payment actually. It's it's uh, money transmission. Okay. So if you think about payment, that's Visa, MasterCard. I don't think they're really threatened okay. uh, by Bitcoin. Um, but uh, something like Western Union where all they do is move money from point A to point B, from person A to person B at a, at a distance. Yep. That's all they do. Uh, um, uh, potentially Bitcoin is um, a better, uh, 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 sort of more efficient way to do that and cheaper. And so as a result, they're going to, um, you know, they, they potentially could be disrupted. So that's just clearly spun on. The others um, who I think a lot of folks expect um, would be antagonists are the payments companies. Um, so Visa, MasterCard, the acquirers, the merchant processors, um, uh, the banks. Um, and they really, again, I think they're, they're in this bucket where, um, I mean, that's not, that's not really their, their business is, is loans and earning interest off of it primarily. Yeah, so, so this so could I, be beneficial, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think banks potentially, um, 
will be disrupted in some distant day in the future. Um, I hope so. I don't like dealing with banks. It feels so. It feels so medieval. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, you know, but I, I, I think they are. They don't see it as a threat right now because it's so small. You know, the the, the total market cap of Bitcoin today is about three billion dollars, which is sort of like a small to mid-sized <laughs> company on yeah. the Nasdaq. Um, so, so they don't see this as uh, as a threat in, in your term, and actually they see the value in innovation and. You know, just about every big, big bank um, that I'm aware of has a Skunkworks team that's looking and working on blockchain. Um, uh, so, so, so that's happening there. So we're lucky that when we um, approach policymakers, uh, oftentimes, um, you know, we are the biggest butt, uh, uh, as you said. Yeah. Well, now, what about the, you know, the libertarian dream when Bitcoin begins, you know, becoming popular? Is that it would be a threat to the Federal Reserve system and yeah. the U.S. currency and even to an extent the IRS if, you know, it makes it harder to do your transactional taxes, whatever else. Um, is that or is that not the case? I mean, take the Fed. Like, what what do they think about Bitcoin? No, I think it's a dream. Um, I don't think- <laughs> like, do they see it as no, a threat no, that will not, weaken the U.S. Not. dollar? No, because okay. because it's not, and and I'm sorry. I mean, I'm sorry to folks who <laughs> who, who think that. Um, uh, I mean, I don't think folks understand. I, 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 here's here's the thing. I think some folks believe, um, and they may have good reason to believe. I'm not an economist, and I'm not you know a specialist in monetary policy. I think a lot of folks believe that the dollar um, will soon collapse, and uh, if if you believe that. Um, and, uh, and if, and, and if the dollar collapses, then what's a, an alternative, then something like Bitcoin looks pretty good, uh, for lots of reasons. Okay. So if that's your starting point is that the dollar is about to collapse. Um, now I don't think the fed believes the dollar is about to collapse. I personally, um, don't think the, the dollar is about to collapse. I think the dollar is actually, um, uh, uh, sort of been, is very strong right now. Uh, all signs point to it continuing to be. Uh, uh, the world's reserve currency. Um, and so the, the kind of growth that you'd have to see or, or you know, switch away from the dollar to Bitcoin would be have to be so massive. It would have to be, I mean, the, the, the trillions of dollars I would have to move in value to Bitcoin. It's just, it's, it's unfathomable. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I just, I don't, I don't see it, and and I don't think, and the Fed certainly, I don't think sees it, and uh, um, and so I don't think they, they're concerned about it at all, and I don't think they should be. Do you think that the idea of a, I mean, there's already, you know, with or without cryptocurrency, there's competing currency because there's a lot of different currencies yeah. all over the world, but cryptocurrency, I think, makes that easier, opens it up, uh, makes it easier to have, you know, sort of worldwide. Um, currencies. Do you think that in general, the availability of more competing currencies put some kind of a check on uh, inflation or or monetary manipulation by central banks, or do you know? Do you not think that that's really a function of cryptocurrency that that is all that important? I, you know, it, it's just not something I focus on. I'm not, again, I'm not a monetary economist and it's not, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
thinking about the discipline of central banks is just not as funny as it would be. You know, we're a cryptocurrency think tank, um, but really monetary policy is just not in our wheelhouse. So, at so all your focus is more on the, the the potential for the technology to um, increase efficiency sure. in in its you know in its use between businesses and individuals, like its transactional benefits, well, rather uh, rather than like a macroeconomic. So, so yes, but but I, th- I think more 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 to the point, what our focus is is making sure that folks continue to have the freedom to innovate using blockchain technologies okay. and how they use that that um, that freedom and how they innovate. You know that who knows what that is um, and what their motivations are um, really doesn't matter to me. Um, I just want to make sure they have the ability uh, 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 to use the technology, whether it's to do payments, whether it's to do remittances, whether it's to do uh, like as NASDAQ um, just recently announced, they're going to use it to uh, do stock trading. Um, it, it's, it could be identity um, management. Um, you could do so much with the blockchain. And we yeah. just want to make sure that people are free as much as possible uh, uh, to be able to do that. So, so what would you say to the you know, because when you said sometimes it's it's having a seat at the table, there are certain phrases that I, <laughs> I think yeah. make make people nervous, right? Like having a man in Washington, having yeah. a seat at the table for for this reason, right? I mean, how yeah. many industries start out with, yeah, you know, new technology, governments kind of messing with it because they don't understand it. We need somebody there to advocate for us. Yeah, and at some point, that advocate, yeah, themselves become the one trying to inhibit progress. Let's say some yeah. new, you know, you become the the great advocate for Bitcoin. Some new variation of Bitcoin or something completely unlike the cryptocurrencies we've seen now starts to crop up. Now you're the vested interest yep. and you're there and you're, you, you know, the regulatory capture thing, right? What do you, what do you say? How do you respond to that? The people who say, you know what? I'd rather have Bitcoin be the wild west. I'd rather have it be this underground unregulated right. thing than to have an advocate there because that's, that's going to lead to stagnation. How would you respond to that? So two things, so, uh, there's a lot of responses there. Um, one response is this, is that, um, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right, um, and I think we'll probably will see this in the cryptocurrency Bitcoin uh, industry. We will see people trying to um, uh, raise the ladder up behind them. Um, uh, it's only a matter of time. I think we'll see that, you know, within 10 years. Um, uh, how does Coin Center um, uh, sort of insulate ourselves from that? Um, it's that we, you know, this is why it's so important to me that we are not a trade association, even though um, uh, about half of our support comes from individuals, which is important to us. The other half comes, uh, does come from leading companies uh, in the space like Coinbase, uh, BitPay, BitGo, Zappo, uh, and from venture capitalists like Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures, et cetera. So although we get that support, it's very important to me um, that when we started Coin Center, we are not a trade association. Um, we are an independent uh, nonprofit um, that is focused on advocating for the technology and the freedom to use the technology, not for any particular company. And uh, and that's the only way uh, that I personally uh, uh, would do it. Um, and so that's how we insulate ourselves. But I think what's important is when you, to me, is that this regulation is going to happen one way or another. Whether you would like Bitcoin to be a yeah. wild west uh, and not be regulated, etc. The fact of the matter is, is that Bitcoin has been regulated since day one, since the day that Bitcoin was created and, and the network began. Um, whether you like it or not, um, certain laws, including the Bank Secrecy Act, including state money transmission laws, all already applied to Bitcoin and its use. 
And so it's regulated. You know, it doesn't matter what you think. And so then as these laws are reconsidered and, and, and better tailored uh, to the new technology, et cetera, um, I, you know, I think it makes sense to have somebody there um, that can try to keep it, <laughs> try, try to, um, uh, uh, you know, keep the damage to minimum, shall yeah. we say? Yeah. Or, you know, say, say positively uh, to make sure that um, it's, uh, you know, the, tech, the, the, the regulations sort of meet the regulators' ends without harming the freedom to innovate. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think the regulation is inevitable. So the question is, do you want to, you know, uh, 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 try to make it better or not? And yeah. I think it's worth making better because the alternative is that through ignorance, which is more likely, or through malice, um, uh, regulation uh, makes technology so useless uh, for mainstream use so that um, it's only a small cadre of people who use this technology. And then, again, I'm a technolog technological determinist in, in some ways, and I think that eventually it will break through. Um, but how soon will that happen? Mm. Um, I'd rather see it um, uh, uh, flourish sooner. And, and, and reach its potential sooner. You know, it's interesting. The, um, I think there's a couple things that you, you mentioned now and before that I think are helpful in terms of the incentives you face at, at Coin Center. One is your supporters being, you know, more diverse, not, not being a trade association. So you've right. got, I'm sure many of the, the companies you mentioned, um, are competing with each other. Uh, oh, yeah. and definitely, and I think that's, I think that's so valuable. I, I always found it interesting. This, this sort of Trump card that sometimes lawmakers or, or people will use. Um, I don't, I think it was the, like somewhere in the HR industry, like PE professional employment organizations or something like that. There were some regulations going on many years ago, um, when I was in Michigan. And, and one of the things that lawmakers who supported it would say is, Oh no, this regulation can't be bad because the companies themselves want it. They oh, sure. want to be regulated. And it's like, of course they do. They want to regulate themselves into a more secure position, right? That whenever whenever the industry is begging for the regulation, um, it's usually a little bit worrisome. Now, unless it's unless it's, you know, a, an improvement on an existing one or something like that. But but I think it's really I think it's really important that you're not a trade association um as much as an advocate for the ideas in general. And I also think it's, it's cool. The, and again, I know you said your main audience is lawmakers as well as media, but I think, I think one thing that a lot of advocacy organizations underestimate, even those who focus on lawmakers is the way in which one of their most powerful tools are actually the, the more average constituents that follow them. So I know there's, there's some interesting studies. It was, it was one of the GMU um, econ professors or a couple of them. It might've been Pete Leeson and somebody else on the impact of state think tanks. And it sort of showed that their impact on policy was like hard to figure out if there was one, but their impact on public opinion was very clear. Um, they had a, an ability to impact public opinion probably more strongly than they even did uh, given policies. Now, those are all, also policies that have a lot more um, vested interest, you know, that have been there for years compared to the one that you're in. But, and I think that's something that's often underestimated. So even, you know, if you go, let's say, testifying committee, I don't even think the benefit there is so much that the people who hear you, the lawmakers are going to say, oh, right. my mind has changed, my vote has changed. Right. But that hey, here's a clip of me testifying. Here's a little uh, synopsis of what we said. The more sort of 
um, member of the public and especially the, the influential members of the public, whether they're in the media or whatever, that can help shape public opinion. Um, and that's what lawmakers are really looking to. They're going to say, I'll do this, right. but will it hurt me? And if it's something that the public knows nothing about, then it probably won't hurt them. But if it's something that the public knows a little something about, and if they hear, hey, this is the guy that's trying to slow down Bitcoin. I've read about Bitcoin. I've heard about it. Coin Center sent me a t-shirt, <laughs> you know, right. um, by the way, a great t-shirt. I have one. <laughs> um, anyway, I think there's, so, there's, so there's I, kind of an impact there in, in, in the way that the public... I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's, I think it's part of it. I think the other piece um, is um, by the time you are being invited to testify, you've already spent probably a couple months uh, in conversations with the committee staff, and you have briefed them, and you have sent them papers, um, and uh, uh, and you've educated them about the issue. So this goes back to what I was talking about uh, having a seat at the table, and how and you're absolutely right that that's a cliche, and it's sort of a shorthand uh, for um, sort of nefarious influence. <laughs> Back in the smoke-filled rooms. Absolutely. <laughs> but but it's important because part of that is, and part of what, why I think what we're doing is so valuable is um, uh, if you can be the person um, to frame the issue um, for the legislature, for the, the member, that's super valuable, right? Who is going to be the first person from whom they hear an explanation of what Bitcoin is? Is it going to be uh, us or is it going to be um, uh, law enforcement who, you know, understandably um, uh, will frame it in a different manner, you know, way? Is it, are they first going to hear it from, um, uh, uh, you know, a money transmitter uh, 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 who's competing with, you know, who, who might feel threatened yeah. by the technology. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, I mean, that's partly why it's, it's just important to, uh, to be there. Um, not to, to do any hoodwinking or exercise any undue influence, but simply to um, be the first to frame the issue um, and, 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 and what's important um, from, the, from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, that I think often what happens is, if there's some new technology or or new business model or something that that threatens a a known industry, and that industry comes to you know lawmakers and says, "Hey, this new thing is happening. It's hurting our business, and our business generates X number of jobs, and this would be terrible for us." The lawmaker is not an expert; they don't have any other information to go on. They're going to say, "Oh, that does sound terrible." Um, Okay, let's you know think about some some legislation, and I think even just the ability to show that there are trade offs, that there are multiple sides, that you know, the, making it harder, I guess, for them to say, okay, this is going to hurt your business, but these guys tell me it's going to help their business, so now it's not so clear. Making it so that things don't seem so easy. Whenever legislation seems easy, oh, this something is harming this industry, yeah. we can end it. That's always like totally scary because there's always another party involved. And if at least both parties are known about and there can be a conversation about the trade-offs involved, um, I think that sort of can can rein in at least a little bit. So let me ask you, Jerry, I mean, what do you think, what are the biggest threats to slow down the innovation um, of you know Bitcoin and, and the blockchain more generally? And then what do you see as sort of, I don't know, the, the future of technological freedom you know what what are the what are the things that you are concerned about and excited about sure so 
Probably the um, biggest challenge uh, for cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin right now um, is at the state level. Um, and it's basically state money transmission uh, licensing. Oh, uh, I never even thought of that. Yeah. Um, so um, if you're in the business of transmitting money, um, you need to get a license before you can operate. And you need to get a license in each of every state that you wow. operate. So if you're an internet business, you know what that means. That means 50 different licenses. Mm. Um, and these licenses are not cheap. Um, uh, I was recently talking uh, uh, to um, one of the co-founders of Coinbase and the general counsel of Circle, which they're both uh, sort of uh, wallet and, and, and Bitcoin exchange services. And they came to, you know, they sort of had the same stats, which is that in order to get about 25 states, so about half the states, it's taken them two years of work and two million dollars oh. in, in attorney's fees, and that, and they're startups, right? So and so and, and they're well capitalized startups. Um, uh, if you if you're somebody in a dorm room uh, with a uh, idea, um, what do you do? I mean, yeah. uh, just today it was announced that the um, uh, there are these Princeton students who were uh, uh, charged in New Jersey. Um, with violation of the money transmission statutes there uh, for producing some open source software. Um, and that was settled today um, happily. Um, uh, and it's, you know, so so uh, if you're a small business and, you, and before you can even begin, you need several million dollars. This is before day one. You need several million dollars uh, mm -hmm. to get licensed. That's a huge barrier mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, to innovation. Now, you know, it's... So, so it's a couple things. It's number one, states right now are in the process of looking at their money transmission laws and seeing how they apply to this new technology. And in, in a lot of important ways, um, the technology, you know, allows for things that these laws did not conceive of, right? Yeah. As you can imagine. Hmm. And so they are revisiting these laws. And so um, we're engaged with uh, legislators and regulators in several states. Um, uh, to help them think through uh, these issues and making sure that the that you know they only cover the, the folks who they need to cover. So, you know, it, let me give you an example of it's, it's a little in the weeds, but you know it's important. Uh, if you think about you know why do we have these laws? These laws are essentially um, consumer protection laws. Um, they sort of emerged in the era of money orders, where let's say you are a um, uh, low-income person, um, you don't have no bank account. Um, I don't, you know, it's amazing. I, I don't think how many people uh, people don't realize how many folks in the U.S. Um, are unbanked, hmm. have no bank account because they live paycheck to paycheck, um, and so you need to pay your your electric bill. And the electric, you know, you have no checking account. So what do you do? Well, you go get a money order, um, so you can pay your electric bill. And so you mail in. You, know, you go to the store. You get a money order. You mail it in. And when you mail it in, the electric company goes to cash it, and it bounces. And it bounces because the money order company uh, that you got it from uh, went out of business, either because they ran away with the money because it was a scam or because they were uh, otherwise insolvent. Um, and so you are now out of, uh, out of you know, uh, uh, out the money, and you still owe the bill. Mm. And there was a rash of these failures of these money transmission companies. And so states began to do money transmission licensing. And so if you are um, holding money 
on behalf of a customer uh, in order to transmit it or otherwise, um, and you're not a bank, you know, banks already have you know their own banking regulations. But if you're not a bank, you're just a company that's holding money on behalf of a customer and, and transmitting it, et cetera. Um, you need to be licensed, and licensing uh, is a background check. It is um, capitalization requirements. It includes permissible uh, investments, so that you you know if while you're holding the money, you can't invest it in penny stocks. You, you, there are only certain things like U.S. Treasuries that you can invest it in, et cetera. Um, it is a bonding requirement, so you have to have a bond. So if you've got a business, hopefully there's money there to, to make customers whole. There's that whole set of so that's the so purpose. It's, it's all based on the assumption that you're going to be holding this money for Bingo. some period of time. Yeah. Bingo. And so. Um, this potentially makes sense um, for a lot of Bitcoin companies that are going to be holding consumer funds. We've seen um, sort of some of the very early uh, first wave of amateur uh, uh, Bitcoin companies like Mt. Gox um, uh, collapse um, uh, and and sort of leave their customers uh, hanging dry. Um, so you could potentially imagine why you'd want these laws. Um, but here's the deal. Um, Bitcoin... Uh, cryptocurrency allows for the first time to have divided custody. We've never seen this before. So when the law now talks about having custody of consumer funds, what does custody mean? Because with Bitcoin, you can have what's called a multi-sig address, a multi-signature address, where you need um, M of N keys to enact a transaction. So for example, let's say two out of three keys. Um, so it's a Bitcoin address that has $100 associated with it, and you need and there are three keys, um, and you have one, I have one, and my friend Johnny has one. And you need two of these keys to be turned in order to spend any money. Hmm. So who has custody of the funds, <laughs> right? Fascinating yeah. and new and something that legislators probably don't know about at all when they're writing these laws. And so we need to make sure that custody um, is defined in these laws so that it only means if you have um, uh, sufficient keys to unilaterally execute or prevent a transaction. Hmm. And if you define it that way, and that's a little legalese there, but if you define it that way, then it only really covers the, 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 the types of companies that the legislators intend to cover, right? Those who actually have custody. And then when you have innovative firms who are doing interesting things with multi-sig technology, providing security, et cetera, and they, you know, they only are holding uh, you know, one of three keys and the customer has the other two or whatever, um, Let's make sure that those companies are not covered uh, mm. under those laws. That's a and, that's a big task to be dealing with. So many state level. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. So, <laughs> so that that's right now the biggest the, the I state think it's level. Biggest okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about what sort of keeps you up at night with excitement? <laughs> what do you see as like the most exciting? It doesn't even have to be in cryptocurrency. In in technology, uh, the most exciting development that you that you get thrilled about. It's Bitcoin. Are you kidding me? Well, okay, okay. Wait, let's get, let's get more specific. What elements well, of Bitcoin, in terms of like the application to it, yeah, that, I that mean, makes you most excited? It's. I, I'll give you some examples, but let me first kind of punt a little bit and say that the best part about it is fact. that you can't that you can't predict exactly. <laughs> that's not punting. That's totally fair. I do it all the time. Yeah, the exciting thing is that, you know, I I sort of thought that I had missed the exciting part of of technical revolution, right? Because I, you know, I was kind of I was in college and kind of there for the advent of the web and all the policy um, uh, battles uh, that uh, went along with that. You know, uh, I mean, just how fun it was. I, I just remember all these conversations of people like, yeah, you know, 
the web will never be that big because it will never be able to, you'll never be able to stream video. It's just too much bandwidth or, you know, it's, there's no way to monetize it. So you'll have to charge people for access and the prices will keep going up, you know, (laughs) just the lack of imagination, which is understandable, but it's, it's so cool to kind of see that unfold. And I I imagine similar unpredictable things with Bitcoin. I mean, when, if you think about Bitcoin as a parallel to the web, um, I hope I get these these dates right, but something like Tim Berners-Lee described the web in a paper in like 92, and he didn't write up the code and launch the first like website until 93, right? And if you think about Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto described Bitcoin in the paper in late 2008 and um, wrote the code and launched the network in 2009. Um, so that's where we are. And if you think about the web, we didn't have a pop, you know, a broadly available commercial w- web browser until about two years after uh, Tim Berners-Lee began the web. So that was Netscape Navigator with you know, Mark Andreessen. Yeah. Um, and then even then, the web was pretty useless because there was no good way to search it. It wasn't until like four years after that that we got Google. Hmm. Um, and so. And, and, and so we're in those very early days, like pre-Google type. Well, there almost isn't – I mean there, some of these places are, are doing it in small ways, Coinbase and, and whatnot. But that that phase that the internet was at where really only coders could use it, there wasn't an, an interface or a platform that allowed sort of average everyday people. I kind of okay. feel like Bitcoin is there. Like if I, I want my mom reason. to get involved in Bitcoin, it's like where do you go? It's a little too complex still. Well, and, and there was no good reason for ordinary people like right. your mom to get involved. Like why Why would they want to get on the web? There's nothing there. <laughs> it's, it's for enthusiasts. It's for coders. It's for, you know uh, um, there really isn't anything there. At that At that moment, you could not a lot of folks couldn't imagine what the killer apps would be. Um, they, people could not imagine Facebook. People could not imagine Netflix. Um, uh, and Amazon.com. I mean, the Amazon. entire physical, you know, purchasing of goods is right. <laughs> Skype, yep. which we're talking on right now, right? Uh, people could not imagine that, and and so you know, there was they, they, you didn't know what the killer app would be. So that's where we are today, I think, with Bitcoin. And I don't know what five, ten years from now. Is going to be the thing that, that most people, uh, I, you know, and I think that um, 10 years from now, most people are going to be using Bitcoin uh, on a daily basis. They probably aren't going to be knowing it or thinking about it. Like you use uh, TCP IP or HTTP every day and you don't think about it. Yeah. Right. And Bitcoin's a protocol um, just like uh, TCP IP or HTTP, but you use it every day. You don't think about I'm using TCP IP. You're just like banking. Yeah. You are calling a friend and you're using these these protocols and you don't even think about it. And I think it's going to be the same way that 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 core element of the blockchain that the, the trustlessness, I guess that to me is so powerful because it has so many applications. Um, the fact that you things can be verified in a public way that doesn't rely on any sort of one company to be the one that you're trusting to not screw it up or not let somebody steal your stuff or whatever it might be. Um, that ability to have that, that trustless system for transferring property, really any kind of property, I mean, or, or, or a title to property, if you want to call it that, um, man, there's so many implications there that, that the more I, when I sit down, you know, it's like, sometimes I'll forget. I'll be like, okay, why do I think Bitcoin's so exciting again? <laughs> I had to kind of like go right. through in my head again. And then you just, you start to have that, that light bulb moment all over again. 
Yeah, and I think it's 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 beyond that. I think that's key to it, uh, of course. But it's it's beyond that. It's, it's a bunch of other things. It's that it's an open platform, um, so anybody can can build on top of it. And when you have that open platform, the way the web was an open platform, you get entrepreneurs coming up with ideas that you'd never think about. Mm-hmm. And then it's it, it allows you to do things that weren't possible before. Uh, so obviously, transacting without intermediaries is chief among them, which is what you're describing. Uh, but it's also things like microtransactions. Hmm. You know, we have not been able to, you know, the, the way um, that the web is monetized today uh, is through advertising. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, because, you know, as you say, how do you charge for content on the web? How do you charge to uh, to view an article of the New York Times and pay for it? It's, it's too costly to efficiently charge a penny or less yeah. or something. Bitcoin makes it possible now, um, and we just saw the launch of something called Streamium, which is, you know, it's 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 a, it's a very beta, um, but it begins to show what's possible, where you can pay uh, to watch streaming video, um, not by a subscription where you pay for all you can eat, but you can pay um, by the minute hmm. um, that you're watching uh, a live uh, feed. Um, this wasn't possible uh, before Bitcoin. So it's things like that that, that really have me excited. Jerry, uh, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. My guest again has been Jerry Brito. He is the executive director of Coin Center. You can find them at coincenter.org. Jerry's personal website is jerrybrito.com. I appreciate you uh, coming on and getting us up to date on what you're doing. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. You bet.